Hey, everybody. One of the things that most attracts me to Ursula Le Guin is the way she engages with the non-human, with animals, yes, but also plants and insects and birds and even rivers or rocks, both unmooring us from our expected human-centric tales, but also suggesting there is something of value in seeing all of these creatures and things as kin. You see this in her writing in all three genres, very prominently in her poetry, in many of her essays, and throughout her novels and short stories, from the beginning of her career all the way through. So it is exciting to share this first foray into Le Guin's engagement with nature and how she imaginatively portrays the non-human natural world within story, but also the implications of the various ways she places the human within them as well. Today's guest, nature writer Isaac Yuen, a writer who engages with questions of nature, culture, and identity in both his fiction and nonfiction writing, is someone whose writing and work in environmental education have been deeply informed by many of Le Guin's sensibilities. And he has a remarkable depth and breadth to his familiarity with her work and brings an unusual insight to the ways it forms his own writing practice. Where honestly, we could have talked for many more hours than we did. If this is your first listen to this new series, or your first encounter with the podcast between the covers as a whole, there's an abundance of science fiction and fantasy conversations in the archive, as well as an abundance of conversations that are great examples of nature writing as well. Some of them that come to mind that could be considered both of these things are those with Richard Powers, Jeff Vandermeer, Anthony Doerr, Karen Russell, David Mitchell, Neil Stevenson, Nedia Korafor, and of course the three with Ursula K. Le Guin herself. You can find these by going to tinhouse.com slash podcasts and clicking on the SFF filter to foreground them. And speaking of building and sustaining ecosystems, if you enjoy what you hear, either as a first-time listener or a long-time listener, consider being part of Dreaming the Show and this series into the future. You can check out all the potential rewards and benefits, including many Le Guin-specific ones, at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, as Le Guin said in her fiery National Book Foundation Award acceptance speech, quote, Hard times are coming when we'll be wanting the voices of writers who can see alternatives to how we live now and can see through our fear-stricken society and its obsessive technologies to other ways of being and even imagine some real grounds for hope. On that note, I bring you today's conversation of Crafting with Ursula on writing nature and nature writing with Isaac Yuen. (music) 
the connection between what I do as a writer, make, making worlds out of words, and what my wizards do, using words to kind of remake the world and change the world and cast spells, and that magic in Earthsea is word magic. I mean, obviously, to me, words do make magic in a sense. They make something new or different. What I'm after ultimately is to make something beautiful. Just like a potter making a pot or a sculptor carving a statue. Art has to do with making something that is satisfying and beautiful. I see my job as, as holding doors open or opening windows, but who comes in and out the doors? What you see out the window? How do I know? My responsibility is just to keep the mind open, not close it off. That's enough right there. Hello and welcome to Crafting with Ursula. Today's guest is writer Isaac Yuen. Yuen is a first-generation Hong Kong Canadian has a Bachelor's of Environmental Science from Simon Fraser University, a Bachelor's of Environmental Engineering Technology from the British Columbia Institute of Technology, a Master's in Environmental Education and Communication from Royal Roads University, and a Certificate of Urban Permaculture Design from Langara College. He has conducted terrestrial and aquatic biodiversity surveys in Belize done field work, collecting groundwater, soil, and vapor sampling in Canada, co-developed and implemented recycling workshops for children, and currently works for the Recycling Council of British Columbia. Isaac Yuen is also a prose writer whose fiction and nonfiction engages with questions of nature, culture, and identity. His works can be found in Orion Magazine, Agni, Gulf Coast, Pleiades, Shenandoah, and have been cited as notable in Best American Science and Nature Writing. In 2019, he was a Jan Michalski Foundation Writer-in-Residence in Switzerland, and he is currently the Associate Fiction Editor at Tahoma Literary Review. He also runs the great blog EcoStories, ekostories.com and his debut collection of nature essays, Utter Earth, is forthcoming in 2023 from West Virginia University Press. Isaac Yuen is here today to talk about writing nature and nature writing in his own work alongside that of Ursula K. Le Guin's. Welcome to Crafting with Ursula, Isaac Yuen. Hi, David. It's good to be here. So you've said that the two most formative influences on your work as a writer are the writings of Ursula K. Le Guin and the films of Miyazaki. Uh, Writings and films that reside on opposite sides of the Pacific Rim, but share some sensibilities in common. And I was hoping maybe before we, we dive into nature writing in relation to your work in Le Guin's, first just talk to us about your first encounter with Le Guin's work and, and your relationship to it over time. Of course. I think my experiences are similar to 
a lot of kids uh, growing up uh, with Leguin's work. My first experience was with uh, her Earthsea uh, trilogy, A Wizard of Earthsea, and I still could remember the first time I picked up the book because it was in uh, grade five. It was just in a standard like book box, you know, you had to read a book for English. And I just randomly picked one out with an interesting cover. It was one of those terrible 70s covers uh, where everybody on the cover was dressed in sort of garish medieval clothing. And then there was one character that had a hawk half <laughs> for the front uh, on the top. So I was like, oh, that seems interesting. And I started reading it. And um, it was one of the books I read, you know, during that year and, and so forth. We had a book club. So you just kind of read as much as you can. Um, but I think for her, her stories really kind of stuck around in my head without me knowing about it. Um, later on, uh, I would read the other trilogies and then I would kind of forget about them. You know, like as you grow up, you sort of go, oh, okay, those are fun stories. But I think they stayed around while other stories sort of disappeared into the background. And I had happened to reread them uh, later on in my 20s. And I was kind of struck by how different they were. Like there were elements that I really resonated, uh, that really resonated with me when I was growing up as a teenager. But there was always different ideas uh, that popped up in my 20s when I reread them again. And I was like, there's something to this. <laughs> so that really intrigued me. And um, I started going into her science fiction collection in my 20s, um, reading those. And they were a little bit difficult for me to penetrate. But um, I think I it, it grew on me as well in a way that sort of good books do. Something clings on to you, organically sort of weaves into your 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 mindset and your 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 worldview almost it's like everything that you experience in life there's some sort of parallel or connection that you can tie back to the stories and and her books and then at the same time I was still not writing uh I didn't know that writing was a um was a direction that I wanted to 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 go through uh to to to, to take on basically as a as a vocation but I started to notice the the effectiveness of the prose um, and how language, her use of language was so effortless and graceful and beautiful. And that had the aesthetic sensibility of it really started to resonate with me after my, I guess I, I came to understand my taste, which is one of those things where you don't really know. Maybe that was also cultivated from my earlier readings. Mm. Uh, and now I'm just coming back to it. Um, so that that was really interesting. A lot of her, her work is really sort of interwoven into, I, I would say, how I think, or it, it's a foundational uh, author for me. Well, you've written about how, as a child of two cultures, that your first encounter with Wizard of Earthsea, with the way that Le Guin wove Eastern philosophies into this book, among many others, actually, was a particularly attractive thing to you. But when I think of you describing yourself as a, as a child of two cultures and how Le Guin's work bridges both realms, I also think of the way you've pointed out that the prefix eco, which we find both in ecology and economy, comes from the Greek word home. 
even though Wizard of Earthsea is not one of the texts that we've chosen to dig into and grapple with today, I, I did want to start with this book that presented a home of sorts for you, one that didn't make you choose between two cultures, neither of which perhaps would fully feel like home by themselves. Um, I want to start here because one of the topics among many that you put forth as we brainstormed in anticipation of today was the concept of imminence in Le Guin's work. I would love for you to talk about this because both because I'm not entirely sure I understand it, but I also bring it up now because in Earthsea, the school of magic exists on the Isle of Roke in a place called the Imminent Grove, the source of magic and power in this universe. Its home begins on an island in this uncanny stand of trees. So, so talk to us about the concept of imminence, what it is for you, and, and why this is one of the first topics that came to mind when thinking of Le Guin. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, it's one that I've grappled with for a very long time. Uh, I think it was a concept that jumped out at me immediately, even as a child, um, even though I didn't know what the word meant. You know, there's a lot of reading when you're a kid where you kind of piece together the meaning from the context of the story, or you make it your own meaning in your head. Um, whereas this is, you know, this, this eminent, eminent grove where the, the center of the world is, is a forest um, of mystery, mysterious trees. Um, I think the touching on that mystery is a big thing um, that affords this, this, this grove of trees, like it's, it's power almost. There's a, an element of non-human strength in that grove of trees that I really was drawn to um, something that's not comprehensible by people, by humans. And that's really interesting to me um, because that, you know, as someone that grew up um, fascinated by nature, um, interested in animals, um, even in an urban setting, because I, I grew up in Hong Kong and um, nature in my living circumstances was not prevalent. So when I, when I moved to North America, to Canada, that was a big explosion almost of, of um, interest in, in sort of the non-human world um, in different forms. So I think Le Guin's Earthsea uh, and this place, this locale, that's the source of power in her universe, source of wisdom, source of knowledge that is non-human based, that humans try to construct something around is very interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And so over the time of, of me just like trying to understand this world and as she wrote more and more about it and placed more emphasis on this, this, this grove in her, in her world, I just got more and more intrigued by it. And it's still something that it's not described very much. Like you have to really look for it. And it's, I think the, the more it's hinted at, the implications are more interesting to me than, than actually just explaining this is how it works. Um, and I think she does a very good job of that. When you wrote to me about imminence, you described imminence as a deep embodiment of nature, 
within her world building, within Le Guin's world building, without the elements becoming too overt. And you said something that I really love, quote, there's a lack of striving and more of a stepping that makes things more compelling. And I love this notion of a lack of striving and more of a stepping. And, and while this is not the same thing, but perhaps it's, it's something in harmony with it, you could say that the main gesture of this book is also not one of striving, but maybe it is something of stepping. And in a way, to step forward for Ged is to step back, um, as Ged's journey is not one of acquisition or conquest, but one of undoing damage that he has wrought through pride. Um, and doing so requires ultimately the acknowledgement of the ways he isn't just a self, but beholden to others. And I, I wonder if this is somehow, I don't know if this is looping us back to this question of imminence, but mm-hmm. does this bring up anything, this thinking of imminence and then thinking of something different than striving that's stepping and somehow this stepping creates something compelling in her writing for you? I think that's the central core of her commentary on human society, right? We're so busy striving, achieving, going towards a certain goal that the steps are lost. Like, I think it's a matter of being present and um, paying attention. The stepping is a more deliberate way of moving in in the world. And I think her Earthsea books and and other books as well, but uh, pronounced in the Earthsea books is, is the pacing is, is different than your standard fantasy action, you know, like a trilogy or a series. There's a lot of introspection. There's a lot of being aware of where you are um, in the world, in your own life. Um, So I think that that's one of those things where yes, the striving is, is something that the book sort of shies away from, but because it emphasizes a different mode of of negotiating with the world, it, it's it's hard to articulate it. Uh, it might not resonate with everyone, but it definitely resonates with me. Um, even as a child, um, there's a, a lot of adventure elements in the first book. Obviously, the the, the part that that I always love with the sailing um, to the different islands, and each different island's different. But yeah, Ged's journey is, is, is one where he strove too much, you know, like that was his problem. He strove too hard. He, he wanted to make things happen too quickly. Um, and his ambition sort of was his downfall. And now he basically is humbled um, and he has to learn to pay attention. And the Ged that, you know, was the prideful Ged before his fall, his downfall, is a very different one than the one afterwards where he's been hurt, where he's been um, scared almost into understanding the, the responsibility of living um, and, and, and having an impact on the world. And I think that that was really the, the, the moral dimension, the ethical dimension was very interesting. Like when you're striving, what is it that you're striving to and how does that impact the world? Um, the, the, the RC books use the term of equilibrium, um, a lot. Um, 
in terms of your actions, you must weigh that against, you know, the impact that you have on the world. And you only should do things that are needful, you know, um, and not just whatever you want. So there's that component to it for um, that I think actually ties back to my interest as, you know, a nature educator, environmentalist. It's like, what is necessary? What is needful? What can we do that has considerations for, for the greater world? That's, that's sort of very important. And I think that that sort of comes through in our work. Well, I want to read a brief paragraph on the imminent grove as a way to move towards the stories that you and I have chosen to uh, talk about more deeply, particularly because of magic, the non-prideful kind and, and true power, one that perhaps isn't egocentric or self-serving, res- resides not only, as you say, far from the centers of, of human activity and commerce, but in a place that's very non-human. It seems like a good starting off place for a conversation about writing nature or how nature writes us. So here's the quote. What is learned in the imminent grove is not much talked about elsewhere. It is said that no spells are worked there, and yet the place itself is an enchantment. Sometimes the trees of that grove are seen, and sometimes they are not seen, and they are not always in the same place. It is said that the trees of the grove themselves are wise. The novices, the townsfolk, the farmers consider that the grove moves about in a mystifying manner. But in this, they are mistaken, for the grove does not move. Its roots are the roots of being. It is all the rest that moves. And I read this last part because this uncanny shift in in point of view is a good segue into one of the stories you wanted to talk about direction of the road, which is told from the point of view of a tree and creates a vertigo for the human reader by the way Le Guin chooses to flip perspective. So talk to us just generally speaking about direction of the road. Why, why this story stepped forward for you when we were sort of, um, figuring out how to distill our interests into a, into a topic today. That's a lovely transition <laughs> from uh, the, the notion of relativity. Um, what frame or what perspective are we viewing the world from? So a bit of a background, the direction of the road is, is built. It's a short story. It's about seven pages long. Um, and I first read it in her collection, The Wind's Twelve Quarters one of my favorite sort of short story collections of hers. Um, and uh, it's basically the, the, the conceit around it is that it's a tree. It, it, the story is told from the perspective of an oak. Um, Le Guin actually was inspired by an actual tree. So I, I, I reread it again, and it's a tree south of McBinville Bypass on Oregon State Highway 18. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a tree there that she was inspired by you're like oh this grand tree by the highway um so it talks about the world the oak sees and how it interacts with that said world um so everything uh, that that's sort of described in the story comes from that perspective it's a very tree-centric perspective so it is the tree that sort of moves around the world 
So if, you know, from our perspective, we're walking towards the tree, but from the tree's perspective, it is actually the active agent of its own story. It shrinks and grows as something approaches it. So it's, it's telling the story from its own perspective and it has its own sort of bizarre logic that completely makes sense for a tree. And that's one of the things I love about Le Guin is how she can take a concept and sort of follow and think it all the way through, even to its weirdest, strangest conclusion. And this tree is, is a very, you know, it's, it's also associated with uh, a lot of the traits that we would associate maybe with an oak tree. Uh, so it's a, it's a mixture of the necessary anthropomorphization of the tree with tree qualities that are completely bizarre and alien to us. So um, it talks about, you know, it's, it's uh, perspectives on humans, uh, how humans used to be lovely creatures that sort of it can accommodate in, into its life, you know, a, a, a human walking towards it, it would, you know, shrink and grow as it, uh, it grows as it, as humans walk towards it, it shrinks away when humans walk away from it. And it does it at a very leisurely pace until human society, human inventions come along. Now there are the horses and it's like, ah, uh, horses, I can sort of accommodate. They're kind of weird, but you know, I'm, I'm okay with accommodating, dealing with horses, growing as they come, shrinking as they go away. Then cars come along and it's like, oh, cars are terrible. You know, they, 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 they drive weird and then they go so fast. But as an oak, it describes itself as being duty bound, as <laughs> um, having to, to, to shoulder this duty of moving or, or growing and shrinking in relation to the world. So uh, this is a story that's, it's uh, very strange, but um, it illustrates her. I, I think it, it's one of those stories where it's, it's thoroughly non-human in the best way. Uh, and, and it's, the, the, the ending is also quite surprising and interesting. And there's a lot of, lot of stuff to, to mull over. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, just, I just find it a, a bit of a delight. It's thought-provoking, it's thoroughly bizarre, and uh, that that's a couple of things that really draw me to it. Well, I do want to unpack some of what you said about it more, but before we do, I want to take a step back and um, talk about it in relationship to your writing also. You've called this sort of nature writing reverse bridging. So most nature writing involves ruminations that are human to non-human, Human, human ruminations about the non-human, but reverse bridging involves stories from the non-human to the human. And there are many examples of this in your own writing. You've written from the mind of a clam. Your story, Proxies, has a character that's a neutrino. Another story which I think shares some of the disorientation of Direction of the, load, uh, direction of the Road of yours is, is told from the perspective of an island to its lover. And your piece uh, regarding lichen interbraids human and lichen realities, perhaps mimicking the way lichen itself is a composite or interbraided organism, uh, part fungus and part algae. Um, so, so talk to us about your attraction to reverse bridging as a storytelling technique. I think it's one of perhaps 
just uh, it, it's a refreshing way to approach a story. Um, frankly, sometimes I get a little bit bored <laughs> of human rumination about nature, um, having sort of uh, been in the space and, and thinking about the space. Um, being centered around human notions or human perspectives is is good and it's it's necessary but i think this this notion of reverse bridging it's it's a, a reaching for um the centering of a story in another perspective even though that's you know 100% to do that 100% is 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 impossible because i'm a human um but i think the attempt is interesting as an experiment so a lot of those stories that you mentioned that I wrote um, started as sort of a foray, an experiment into, you know, a certain intriguing feature or an intriguing property of these very non-human elements, you know, an island, a neutrino, lichen. So I would read something and then I would be like, oh, this is really interesting um, property wise, you know, like and, and try to construct something from that perspective even though I'm going to be assigning human qualities to those entities. Um, but I think it's still something that is uh, an in interesting exercise. And I hope that um, other people who read it get something out of it. I think it's, uh, it's also a little bit strange. Uh, and and it's, it's something that there is a barrier there. But once I think you, you break through to that side um, of, of sort of, figuring out what the protagonist is, what their mentality is. Uh, it's, it's an interesting experience. It makes you learn more about the different elements and, and, and entities that are out there. You yeah. Know, that's really interesting for me. Well, I love, I mean, we're the third conversation for this series and already I'm, I'm discovering all these great areas of connection of this connective tissue between conversations, even though the topics couldn't be more different. So like uh, the episode before ours with Molly Gloss, which is about writing the clear, clean line. I mean, a lot of what we are talking there on the level of the sentence and the line is, is Ursula's attraction to long rhythms or the long rhythms of Tolkien, for instance, and, and the meaning that's conveyed below the words. And I think that connects to some of what you were saying about pace and how there's some different sort of pace in the earth sea series, but what you've been saying about direction of the road in particular reminds me of, of some of what I was talking with Becky chambers about creating aliens and alien cultures. Cause there's a certain, when you talk about sort of balancing, like sort of the anthropomorphic aspects of the tree with things that are more quote unquote tree like, um, I mean, there's a certain conundrum and paradox, right? Because we're all we're all human readers with human language, and we're trying to convey something that that um, is coming from a different point of view. Um, and we we touched on that, like how to do that, how to because I think we could say that we're we're dealing with some of the same questions when coming from the level of a tree. Um, for instance, when we're when Becky and I were talking we shouldn't presume humans or bipedal upright mammals are the default even for our own planet, let alone the universe as a template to build uh, aliens. A and yet what we write still needs to be legible to some degree to the humans reading it. That for instance, Le Guin's idea of Kemmer in Left Hand of Darkness, 
where the people are androgynous for 24 out of the 26-day lunar cycle, and then in Kemmer the other two days, that wouldn't really have the same meaning to us if these people were not recognizably human in some other ways, if they were giant worm-like creatures and they were going through this, maybe it wouldn't make us think or unsettle us in a way. Um, and I was recently reading a, a really great conversation between Karen Joy Fowler and Jeff Vandermeer, which touches on whether it is possible to look into a truly alien mind, and if it is, how. And in that conversation, Vandermeer talks about our endless fascination and self-regard as humans around the cool gadgets we've created, but that the technology isn't really that smart or complex or miraculous compared to what any plant does in its operations in a, in, in a given moment. And I'd add that perhaps trying to imagine oneself as a plant, as, as writers from Vandermeer himself to Richard Powers are increasingly trying to do, that this might be much more of a leap than to imagine yourself as a typical science fiction humanoid alien. In fact, you said in your own writings, quote, it's always interesting to have an outsider observer comment on the human condition. In science fiction, it is often done with extraterrestrials, in children's books, talking animals, but rarely is the commentary delivered through plants, which in many ways are more alien than anything our imaginations can conjure up. So thinking of all of this, what's interesting to me about Direction of the Road is the blend of strategies Le Guin employs, a blend of the familiar, as you suggested already, and the bewildering. There are things the oak tree thinks or feels that, while very oak-like as a human might imagine it, are also, in a way, by extension, kind of human-like. The, the oak has preferences. It prefers birds over squirrels. It is a, a speciest. It looks down at apple trees with um, contempt, and it has utter disregard for pussy willows. <laughs> and it does all sorts of other things that are part of the delight of this story and might be how we as humans would imagine the oak personality. But as you mentioned, the weirdest thing about the story, much like the uncanniness of the imminent grove in The Wizard of Earthsea, is the oak's sense that it can grow and shrink, and quite quickly, that it isn't that the tree looks smaller to us from a distance, but that the tree itself shrinks as we move away and gets larger as we approach, um, at least from its point of view. In, in your writings about the story, you look at this choice of, of Le Guin's and say, if I was an oak with no understanding of movement, the reality of shrinking and growing might seem completely intuitive. Scientific principles and objective measurements may disprove this reality, but the oak does not understand science and has no need for facts. But I wonder if this is really showing the tree's ignorance of physics, or rather whether it is a technique to unmoor us from what we are sure is true about reality as humans, that to truly try to enact the entering of the consciousness of something as alien as a plant, we both need to sort of be lured in with things and to be utterly unmoored. Because I feel like the whole time I'm reading this story, I'm grasping for somewhere to stand and the story won't give it to me, but entertains me all along the way. And so I kind of feel like 
that's what this role of this um, flipping of physics might be as a writer doing to a human reader is, um, I don't know. I just want to hear your thoughts about that. I think the unmooring aspect you mentioned is, is definitely an intended effect, but I think I, I'm not sure how, because this story is written in the seventies um, and it's quite an old story and our understanding of the world has gotten just more and more strange. Uh, I'm not a scientist, but reading a lot of physics uh, related news in sort of just my general research sometimes it's like we don't understand our world at all like in even the most fundamental ways so I think when I'm rereading this story um, I'm able to let go of more of my understanding uh, of, of, of reality <laughs> of human reality even not not to mention even an oak reality it's like yeah, it, it's 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 an element of yes, it's centering itself as the center of its world, as most things do, I would imagine. Um, and this shrinking and growing element uh, is is the core of its own understanding of the world that it lives in. Um, but it uses the word relativity, uh, the concept of relativity in a very specific way. And I think maybe it's understanding of this word relativity is, is I, I shouldn't say this because this is kind of unscientific, but uh, it, it's just as valid as our understanding of relativity, just because we know that there is no fixed frame of reference in the world. Um, so it's moving or we're moving we're both moving. We're both spiraling through space <laughs> around the sun, right. around, you know, the galaxy. Like there's no, no element of, of being fixed anywhere. So it's like, if it thinks that way, <laughs> there's an element of truth there. And our understanding of reality, there's an element of truth there. It's not the whole truth. We know that now there's, there's a very, very, <laughs> mysterious element that we have failed to grasp on a very fundamental level on the nature of reality through our understanding of modern physics. And it's, so I'm, I'm willing to go, sure, let's go with it. And, and that's sort of the thrill of reading a story like this is that knowing how unmoored we are anyways, let's be unmoored together. Yeah. And let's, um, <laughs> let's go on this adventure together. Let's see what your perspective is. And I think that element of thought makes it um, both a sort of a whimsical exercise and one of grounding ourselves and not making ourselves very as like super important. Mm -hmm. It's like um, the oak thinking this way. It's, it's equally valid in its own world than our understanding of what's going on. So I think that that part I really enjoy, especially when I'm rereading this story. It's just always a, a, a delight. Well, also, I'm thinking when you at the beginning were connecting imminence with mystery, which by extension would be a place or a thing that we can't grasp and reduce to comprehension, right? So I think perhaps the role of uh, one of the roles of paradox in religion was to stop the human striving mind to feel like everything could be known. 
and there's a value in in uh, in um in both the acknowledgement of what we can't know no matter how much we try to know and creating a space for the unknown i think it's it, it's a, it's a good reminder of it's 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 a good thing that we do can constantly uh, reach out and try to understand the process of understanding is very important and that's the nature of of who we are and that could encompass the best qualities of us but i'm always reminded of this um sort of mental image of just us trying to understand the, the limits of understanding it's basically we're making a bigger circle as we grow in our, our pool or body of knowledge but the edges are always going to be bigger so the more we understand the more we know we don't understand and i think um balancing the two, um, accepting the fact that, you know, there are always going to be elements that are beyond our comprehension and appreciating the mystery of that all the while, while trying to understand, um, as much as we can is, is, a is a really interesting, um, tension, I guess, between the two elements. Well, another thing you mentioned in our back and forth, it, it, is how sometimes just a very brief moment within a non-human point of view can have an outsized effect on the reader's experience of the world. And you mentioned that in Ursula's craft book, Steering the Craft. She talks about when Tolkien shifts the story into the perspective of a fox, but only for one passage and never again. And how Le Guin notes that this enlarges the world of Middle-earth tremendously, this one sentence. Uh, and this reminded me of how in, in the same book, she talks about Tolstoy's War and Peace, where she says, quote, from the technical aspect, it's almost miraculous in the way it shifts imperceptibly from the author's voice to the point of view of a character's, speaking with perfect simplicity in the inner voice of a man, a woman, even a hunting dog, and then back to the thoughts of the author till by the end you feel you have lived many lives, which is perhaps the greatest gift a novel can give. I love that you and her mentioned this, that even one single sentence in a book this way can change the whole book. Um, and I just wondered if you had any, if any thoughts come up for you as I read those things. It's a matter of scope. Um, you know, you can construct the world. You can, you know, as a, as a novelist, as a fiction writer, it's your job to world build in this world and to, to, to highlight what is important, what is necessary, what is, is vital to the reading experience, to the characters engaging with the world. But then there are elements, I think, for a good world builder is that you should introduce some mysteries to this world, some outside perspectives where you, even as the world builder, you're like, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> I think that's really interesting. And for me as a reader, I always love those little tidbits where it's like, you, because it, it's so, it's such an intensive process to create a world for someone to inhabit, for, for the author to inhabit, for the reader to engage with that world. So as a, as a creator it's such an interesting technique or a, a reminder to introduce an element that's beyond the scope of the story. 
And I think that way you actually ground the world in something greater than it's just coming out of one person's mind. Like it's, it's almost like you're tapping into something else in terms of your world creation process in, in, in your storytelling. It's like, Hey, this is, remember what we're doing here, but remember that this is also a thing that's out there. And, you know, just being able to, to put that in there, insert that in there once in a while, I think it, it makes a, a very big difference. A, a, it has a big effect on, especially for particularly for me. And I go, Oh, this is, this is, this is an exercise in immersion, but it's also within a broader context mm -hmm. uh, of a greater immersion, I guess. And maybe it also suggests those outer margins that no matter how much we've expanded our knowledge, there's this other thing on the edge of the book. Yeah, for sure. Like you don't want your world to be limited to the confines of the words written on the page. I've seen some sort of universes that are created that are quite limited. It's like you retread the same grounds or you talk about the same things over and over again. And there's no element of vastness to this world where it's like, what if a world um, is not just this? You know, like you, uh, I was listening to your podcast and your talk with uh, Becky Chambers and the idea of left hand of darkness um, and the world of Gethin, it's not just this one story that's in the world. There are other stories and Le Guin actually goes and hey, goes and writes something completely different um, later on in her short story about a completely different experience of living in this world that's not related to this world-changing event. Like, even though it's like a very large and epic and large-scale event, there are other things that work in this world. Domestic things, quiet things, everyday things. And I love that about her work, like her emphasis and her attention to elevate those domestic, ordinary people, events, stories. Yeah. Well, that makes me think of not probably a main uh, feature of this of another story you picked bones of the earth but i'm thinking of the wizard in that story and he's just hanging out with his chicken coops and um and it's there's there's a sense of like his his daily ordinary life actually being very ordinary and um in in many ways um but but tell us tell us about bones of the earth um why why you picked it and and how you feel like it has some resonance for you as a writer as a nature writer this was one of the stories where I picked it, but I didn't quite know why until I read it and sort of reread it again. It came to the forefront right away. Um, a bit of an introduction. This is the fifth book of the series, or uh, it's a short story from the fifth book of the Earthsea series. Um, and it's a short story collection. And it's one of the stories in the book. It's a pretty self-contained story, I would say. Uh, you almost don't need any sort of background to read the story. There's a little bit of connection with some of the characters, but it's a story about a man, an old man um, who has a chicken coop, who lives in a house, um, who's, a, who's a wizard, who's a mage. And one day he notices something is wrong in the world, um, that an earthquake is coming um, and it's going to cause devastation to this island he lives on. And he basically tries to find a way to stop it. Um, and it's told, again, it's a very 
quiet story. It's one man thinking, mostly flashbacks, a bit of action. Um, and I just love all the elements of it. There's, you know, that, again, that deeply domestic um, setting, you know, um, and he's just living quietly. Um, there's the element of this this man who is is it's knowledgeable. Um, he he has different levels of knowledge, and I really like this this idea of this is a mage who has training in sort of the great knowledges, the great spells, but he also has local knowledge of he knows every every part of the island this knowledge that isn't taught, but is like experienced. So the story talks about, you know, the, the, the magic of the, of the world um, that's acquired from the island of Rogue, which is the wizard school. But it also talks about local knowledge, local wisdom of, of being present and of being silent. And that sort of both elements uh, of knowledge are, are very much emphasized um, and where that knowledge comes from. So I think that really resonated with me um, while thinking about nature writing is that we're currently and, and very happily incorporating a lot of indigenous knowledge to our understanding and, and having a lot more voices coming to the nature writing genre that's place-based, that's local, that's indigenous. You, it's, it's not scientific in the way where, you know, you, you extract something from it and then you understand it in a sort of a piecemeal sort of situation. It's a holistic approach. So I was thinking of that all the way while reading through the story again. It's, um, it's, it's, it's really digging deep into both types of knowledge to solve a situation. Um, and then I think at the end, you know, there's an element of transformation. So I, I don't know if I should, I mean, I will probably spoil the story a little bit, but, uh, it, there's a, there's a scene where uh, a great act is, is, uh, performed and a man transforms into a mountain. And I, I feel like it's such a, such a, a, a beautiful rendition or, or a rendering of, of this, of this act um, in terms of a man turning into a mountain. And she describes it beautifully. And I always tear up at the end um, of, of the section. And also, I think it's, it's one of those things where I picked it because it's one of the first stories I've heard Ursula read. It's actually one that I picked out from an old audio uh, book. And she re read the story um, and I could sort of follow her, her language, her cadence through the story. So that kind of deeply embedded itself into my brain yeah. um, when I went back. When I think about your talking about, maybe it's not more abstract, but more general, the, the, the knowledge of magic from the Island of Roke versus the local empirical knowledge acquired through living an embodied life. And then you're talking about um, not an opposition to each other, but say indigenous knowledge passed down through generations, through interaction in an embodied way with the land versus the more abstract 
uh, abstracted knowledge of, of, of science, not that there isn't overlap between the two um, quite often. Um, but also think about how you say this act happens, which is a spoiler that, that a person turns into a mountain in, in, in relation to this at, attempt to do magic to stop an earthquake and save lives. But, but we also, there's also just the, the everyday magic. We, we all turn into mountains. I mean, the really, I mean, there's this transmutation of the human into the non-human, no matter what we all are going to become earth again. Um, you, you were going to read something from this story, I think. It is the scene where that happens. And I, I picked it for a few reasons. It's, I think I'm drawn to the story and a lot of her Ursula's work just because there's a there's a grace to the story. It's it's spare, but it's not minimal. Like she chooses words for the musicality or the the, the lyric nature of it, but it's not emphasized. Like she doesn't dwell in the beauty of the language. She says, you know, in her craft books, like, don't do that. If you do that, write poetry. <laughs> So uh, I really love this section because it just flows and it's it's a combination of the the world the the world that she's constructed and the 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 action of the the scene. It's it carries both the the action and movement of of uh, of the story. So I, I would like to read this. Right. Nothing happened as he said the words Ard had taught him his old witch teacher with her bitter mouth and her long lean arms, the words spoken awry, then spoken truly now. Nothing happened and he had time to regret the sunlight and the sea wind and to doubt the spell and to doubt himself before the earth rose up around him, dry, warm and dark. In there, he knew he should hurry that the bones of the earth ached to move, and that he must become them to guide them, but he could not hurry. There was on him the bewilderment of any transformation. He had in his day been fox and bull and dragonfly, and knew what it was to change being. But this was different, this slow enlargement. I am vastening, he thought. He reached out towards Yavid, towards the ache, the suffering. As he came closer to it, he felt a great strength flow into him from the west, as if silence had taken him by the hand after all. Through that link, he could send his own strength, the mountain's strength, to help. I didn't tell him I wasn't coming back, he thought, his last words in Hardik, his last grief, for he was in the bones of the mountains now. He knew the arteries of fire and the beat of the great heart. He knew what to do. It was in no tongue of man that he said, be quiet, be easy. There now, there, hold fast. So there, we can be easy. And he was easy. He was still. He held fast, rock in rock and earth in earth in the fiery dark of the mountain. That's so good. It's one great example, I think, of how um, Le Guin attempts to extend fellow feeling not just to other animals and not just to other animals and plants and not just to all living things, 
but to what we often consider inanimate or non-living, whether it's rocks or human tools that have been passed down, um, fellow feeling feels like it, it goes quite far for Le Guin in her, in her world. In one speech she gave it at a conference called Anthropocene Arts of Living on a Damaged Planet, um, she says, quote, one way to stop seeing trees or rivers or hills only as quote-unquote natural resources is to class them as fellow beings, kinfolk. And I think we see this impulse everywhere in her work. Um, but when you were on Forrest Brown's podcast, Stories for Earth, you mentioned one particular story of Le Guin's that blew your mind, which has a mouthful for a name. <laughs> the author of the Acacia Seeds and other extracts from the Journal of the Association of Therolinguistics. And if you look up the prefix thero, it refers to wild animals or beasts. So a journal of the Association of Linguistics of Wild Animals. And what we learn in this story is also that there are also phytolinguistics and geolinguistics, that there is a language in the plant and mineral worlds as well. And I think this story is mind-blowing in so many ways, and I'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to say about it. So I'm hoping you could talk to us about this story, what the story of the acacia seeds is about, what are these seeds, and, and why are they being analyzed in this journal, but also... Why is this a story you particularly cherish as a writer and scientist? One that seems to me is written in a, well, it's written in both a very serious, dry and academic way, but somehow ends up being extremely funny at the same time. Yeah, this this story I read a few years back and I was just like, this is, I've never, I've never read anything like it. Um, and it, it's just, I, I love strange structures for stories. Um, and this is basically, it's broken into three parts and it's each part is a little bit different, but you can totally see it in sort of your standard academic journal um, where basically all these scientists that are really specialized in their craft and their field are talking in their own lingo and, and their own jargon. And the first one, there's three sections. The first one is about, you know, this author of acacia seeds, and it turns out they're talking about ants, these ants that are actually communicating through that the word is exudations through the acacia seeds. So it's, they're leaving messages in these seeds that can be deciphered. And so Le Guin takes us to this world where this is just a commonplace thing. Of course, there are scientists that decipher ant language this is just like what we do, like, <laughs> that's totally normal. So that's the first leap that she pushes us to, to, to consider. And so, okay, so you settle into the story. And it's like, okay, so these scientists are talking about ants and, you know, their language, which is fine. And the conclusion that I come to is very interesting, very technical, but it also makes sense. Like I said uh, earlier, it's Le Guin really thinks through these things. And she follows this from a scientist's perspective 
to uh, a logical conclusion. So the scientist in the story um, says, you know, this is a this is a plausible explanation. Pure scientist, other person. I came up with my own hypothesis. This is what the story means. So the the narrative of the story is that this is actually an ant revolutionary writing sort of revolutionary texts on these seeds. Um, so this the story is like up with the queen, and where he or she interprets this uh, this message as actually being one of to to overthrow the the colony like this is an ant that that that's not part of the social structure which is hilarious <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and uh it just so this is just part of the normal discourse of this journal and i love that um the second one is actually uh my favorite uh and it's it's one that a scientist is just calling it, it it's a it's call up for an expedition we're going to antarctica to study penguin poetry because this is also a thing and then he goes into the nuances of different kinetic poetry, like from the differences between fish poetry and whale poetry and dolphin and seals. And it's like he describes it, they describe it in very, very specific details. Um, and I, I just love that the idea of, you know, like different interpretations of, 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 of what the meaning of something is. Um, and at the end, he just, they just described this uh, this beautiful scene on enticing others to come along with them to 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 study emperor penguin poetry, and it's the most you know subtle of of penguin poetry. Mm. Um, it, it, it's it's lovely, and then the the third story is an editorial. That's I guess the the president of the Therolinguistics Association is asking us, tasking us to consider expanding our minds even more uh, than, you know, the reader already is, and to consider plants uh, in this conversation, and then further and further on, like beyond plants, to the rocks, to the planet, to space, you know, like this, this constant pushing mm -hmm. of the boundaries of consideration um, especially at the end, and it's, it's one of my favorites. It's just um, the idea of a, the, taking this on as a challenge. You know, we have understood the languages of these animals. Let's keep going. Let's go further, and let's you know include more of the the community of of the community. I, I don't even know what to say. The Earth, yeah, uh, but even beyond. Uh, into our, our sphere of consideration. Well, you having a story of the point of view of an island seems like a good example of that, as, as one example of that. Of, I mean, I can't think of many uh, examples of that, actually. Um, but am I remembering correctly that the kinetic literature of penguins or the sea writing of, of penguins, part of the reason why they're going to Antarctica in the first place is because all of the analysis on this penguin language is sort of predicated on research that was done on dolphins. And so, yeah. and so they're basically like, well, how can we, what are we doing? Like just relying on this research that's secondary research essentially, because these are birds in the water. These are not dolphins. So we need to figure out the penguin language on its own 
Yeah, terms. so it, I love the the sort of this is how science also is done. Like someone puts forth a hypothesis and follows along a train of thought or does experiments on it, comes to a conclusion. Other scientists go, your 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 assumptions are wrong. Let's try another hypothesis. You know, they say, you know, we're we're relying on uh, whale and pe- dolphin poetry to translate penguin poetry. It's like that doesn't work because penguins lay eggs, and that's a completely different experience, yeah. different, completely life changing experience, and it's it's not relevant. So we can we we need to actually study them in their native habitat, and I'd love the element. There's one part in there where it's they're talking about how it's not the kinetic poetry is not translatable into words. And the best um, translation possible is through a ballet, basically. <laughs> it's like, you can't do it in words. It's like, it would be just like writing a libretto without the opera component, like yeah. just incomplete. And so a kinetic form of translation is necessary to communicate the, the elements that, you know, of, of penguin, of a specific species of penguin. And then there are different species of penguin that do very different things that you have to consider as well. So there's a lot of like, these are nerds <laughs> actually just going through <laughs> and like discussing and arguing the finer details and nuances of yeah. the story of, 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 you know, their, their careers, basically, you know, what they're passionate about. And on a broader level, I love how Le Guin uses this obsession this this very passionate obsession of the very minute details, which is necessary for a lot of scientific work. Uh, she captures that, but she also can pull back and look at the grand implications of why we do the work that we do. So I think for this is it's almost like a really good science communication piece. Mm. It's like yeah, you get scientists working on things. You're like, why are you working on this? This doesn't have any implications on daily life like this this makes no sense why are we funding this but then she also pulls back and says this has profound existential implications for how we relate to the world how we see the world how we interact and engage with it and the bigger greater meanings of life and she kind of jumps from one to the other and i there are very few stories fiction stories that that can do that in in an effective way like a lot of it is like, there's a lot of message-driven uh, nature writing or nature stories that are like, you know, call to actions. But this is more like, why are we doing this? Yeah. Um, and and that that to, to communicate that in a in a fictional story with very strange uh, sort of structures and, and concepts, um, it, it's just it's, it's so good. It's, I, I, it's utterly unique for me. So. Well, when you mention when you mentioned that a lot of nature writing might be a call to action, mm-hmm. another category I might think of is like, um, beautiful, lyrical and transporting nature writing, but you mm-hmm. don't often think of funny, not to say that there isn't funny nature writing. Surely there is, but it's not something that I think mostly leaps to mind. And, and particularly the first story we discussed in this story more than bones of the earth. Um, they're really funny, but I would also, as a counter to the funny, as funny as it sounds to study this, like I was, I was listening is a while ago, so I might get the details a little wrong, but there was a radio lab on, on prairie dog language. (laughs) And 
basically like we can't distinguish different um, tones in the way they chirp as with the human ear. So they could look at them as wave as wavelengths and we could see differences when we look at them visually. And if they bring in different size people wearing different color um, outfits, so really small, like a child. And then they had not only like, this is the green large thing. This is the red small thing. There was like all the stuff that all of a sudden you could unpack. If we took the human capacity to hear out of the equation and, and visualized it as a waveform. And you could actually start to come up with, this is a thing from the air that's large and green. This is a thing from the ground that's small and red. Um, that really, like, I wonder how much our absence around these communicative languages, just in a lack of, a, of attention to discovering them. I mean, that's got to be part of it. Not to say that there's that we would discover the ant revolution. Um, I think there's two things. I, I love that you touched on the humor. Like that's always something that's at, at the heart of a lot of what I, I find lovely about Ursula's writing. There's a wryness to the humor. And I kind of grew up with that kind of humor. So it like totally sticks. It, it's clever, but it's not too sort of in your face. Um, it, it's just like this, This there's a, a, a line of like sarcasm to it um, and like an intentional type of, you know what I'm getting at, right? Like it, it's really funny and she highlights it in a way that's loving as well. It's not like a, a critique, you know, she loves this stuff. She's also a nerd about a lot of these things. And it's like, it's, it's done from a, an, a loving perspective. And I, I think that's really just, just, it, it resonates with me. Um, so the second thing is that it's, it's really interesting because, again, this is through a reread. It's like there's a part where she says, you know, uh, in the editorial of the book, it's like, because plants don't communicate. You know, this is a story written in 1974 or 19, yeah, in the 1970s. And now we know that plants do communicate. So even I, I find it amazing that even the story that's so fantastical cannot capture the fantastical nature of our reality. Though she does capture it very explicitly in the same collection in Vaster Than Empires and More Slow, there's a whole passage. Let me see if I even have it with me. Um, there's a whole passage that to me, sort of um, way before the science, suggests the communication between plants um, that, we, that is now all the rage with a, a lot of tree scientists. Um, let me, let me read that. Are you hypothesizing that individual arboriforms are cells in a kind of brain, Manon? Not exactly. I'm more pointing out that they are all interconnected, but by the root node linkage and by your green epiphytes in the branches, a linkage of incredible complexity and physical extent. Why, even the prairie grass forms have those root connectors, don't they? I know that sentience or intelligence isn't a thing. You can't find it in or analyze it out from the cells of a brain. It's a function of the connected cells. It is, in a sense, the connection, the connectedness. It doesn't exist. I'm not trying to say it exists. I'm only guessing that Osden might be able to describe it. So in a way, like, I mean, I, I think you're right. Like the person who wrote the journal 
uh, evaluation has a, um, a limited sense of the capacity of plants to communicate, which to, 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 in the defense of that person writing that, um, epilogue to that journal, he's, he's calling for more studies on phytolinguistics or on, on plant, plant language. So, um, I think he is, am I right? Yeah, I think that's the call that yeah. he has. I, I, in my head, in my head canon, I feel like a, a fourth section should be in the story where it's like the phyto, the response from the phyto linguistic community and say, hey, this is what we're doing, actually, because <laughs> you don't know what we're doing. Yeah, that would be pretty funny. And I would just keep going. <laughs> well, we both picked really short things to read from this. So I'm going to read, um, I'm going to read Seeds 30 31 from the analysis of the acacia seeds. So seeds 3031 were deciphered as eat the eggs up with the queen, both exclamatory. And this is their analysis. We venture to suggest that the confusion over seed 31 may result from an ethnocentric interpretation of the word up to us. Up is a good direction. Not so, or not necessarily so to an ant. Up is where the food comes from, to be sure, but down is where security, peace, and home are to be found. Up is the scorching sun, the freezing night, no shelter in the beloved tunnels, exile, death. Therefore, we suggest that this strange author, in the solitude of her lonely tunnel, sought with what means she had to express the ultimate blasphemy conceivable to an ant and that the correct reading of Seeds 30-31 in human terms is, eat the eggs, down with the queen. Uh, yeah, and this is, I, I think the story is all about, the theme that came up when I reread it, it was a reorientation of everything. You know, like how we perceive ants, how we perceive poetry, like it's, it's, it constantly comes up. It's like, it's tasking us, reorient, reset rethink and it goes and goes outward and outward and outward so i think there's a progression there that's really interesting so uh the section i am picking to read is uh yeah for the the second section uh, on penguins to those of my colleagues in whom the spirit of scientific curiosity and aesthetic risk is strong i say imagine it the ice the scouring snow and darkness, the ceaseless whine and scream of wind. In that black desolation, a little band of poet crouches. They are starving. They will not eat for weeks. On the feet of each one, under the warm belly feathers, rests one large egg, thus preserved from the mortal touch of the ice. The poets cannot hear one another. They cannot see another. They can only feel the other's warmth. That is their poetry. That is their art. Like all kinetic literatures, it is silent. Unlike other kinetic literatures, it is all but immobile, ineffably subtle. The ruffling of a feather, the shifting of a wing, the touch, the slight, faint, warm touch of the one beside you. In unutterable, miserable, black solitude, the affirmation. In absence, presence. In death life. 
I have obtained a sizable grant from UNESCO and have stocked an ex expedition. There are still four places open. We leave for Antarctica on Thursday. If anyone wants to come along, welcome. That's so great. <laughs> um, well, maybe, maybe to, if you'll indulge me, I'll read another little section too from sure. that same part. The emperor, here they're speaking of the emperor penguin. The emperor is an individualist. Therefore, I think it almost certain that the literature of the emperor will prove to be composed by single authors instead of chorally, and therefore it will be translatable into human speech. It will be a kinetic literature, but how different from the spatially extensive, rapid, multiplex courses of sea writing. Close analysis and genuine transcription will at last be possible. What, say my critics? Should we pack up and go to Cape Crozier, to the dark, to the blizzards, to the minus 60 degree cold in the mere hope of recording the problematic poetry of a few strange birds who sit there in the midwinter dark, in the blizzards, in the minus 60 degree cold on the eternal ice with an egg on their feet? And my reply is yes. For like Professor Doobie, my instinct tells me that the beauty of that poetry is as unearthly as anything we shall ever find on earth. So good. Um, I want to circle back to the beginning of our discussion about Ged in Wizard of Earthsea and how you describe that story as being about stepping rather than striving. I don't know if it's a stretch to connect that notion to the Eastern philosophy that appealed to you in many of, of these books when you were a kid. But I do think of the lines in Le Guin's translation of the Tao Te Ching, like, to bear and not to own, to act and not lay claim, to do the work and let it go. For just letting it go is what makes it stay. And I also see this stepping versus striving in a lot of your nonfiction writing. For instance, your piece, Playing to Tie, Adopting a Sustainable Mindset, or your piece, Second Best is Best, where you say sometimes being best can be worst, and which also says, quote, sometimes being at the top isn't all that it's cracked up to be, like if you were declared the world's tallest mountain one day by a Bengali mathematician and then named for a British surveyor you will never meet. The natural outcome of this is that tourists will start clambering over you, ascending your north and south sides, leaving trashed tents and oxygen tanks and corpse after popsicled corpse on your slopes. No, sometimes it is better to trail a thousand feet below and cultivate your image cautiously, like how K2 worked its magic on Italian mountaineer Fosco Mariani over the years. Quote, just the bare bones of a name he waxes about Earth's second highest peak, all rock and ice and storm and abyss. It makes no attempt to sound human. It is atoms and stars. It has the nakedness of the world before the first man or of the cindered planet after the last. There's nothing quite like when someone takes the time to understand the persona you try so hard to project. In this case, rarefied, and insuperable. 
so this this made me think of I mean that captured I think actually some of the wryness of Le Guin actually it's, um, I I hear that resonance between these two things which is interesting but it also made me think of a radio program I was listening to recently not related to this at all and not in preparation for this at all but I was listening to an indigenous Wabanaki program called Dawnland Signals in Maine where they were talking with two indigenous children book writers who not only said that being an artist means helping other artists, but also how they've noticed how most non-native Western children's stories were about being first or becoming king or queen or recognized as a princess or being chosen, but that native stories were most often about how to get along and how to share. And they mentioned this same disconnect around treaties, that treaties seen by the Wabanaki were seen as a way to get along around resources. I have no idea if this connects to plain to tie or second best is best, but I guess I wanted you to talk about this ethos. I feel like you're putting forth in these nonfiction pieces an ethos, which does feel, at least to me as the reader, connected to this notion of stepping and not striving, or even the journey that Ged is going through as a as a person through the... Um, Earth Sea World. Um, talk talk to us about playing to tie second best is best in in light of this. I think definitely those pieces are directly influenced by Le Guin and my reading of of her work and her translation of the Tao Te Ching. It's maybe a matter of me being stubborn and resistant to predominant narratives about success and getting ahead and ambition. Um, and, and, and there's an element of maybe me realizing a lot of those things are destructive in modern society, but the idea of, you know, uh, sustainable growth, what is that about? Um, and it's like, how do we cultivate a more, healthy way to live or spend our time on this planet without always pushing forward. And it's not a, a matter of either pushing forward or staying still. It's a matter of maintaining a balance, you know, like a lot of, of, of the work that Le Guin writes about. It's a dynamic balance that's interesting to me. So to, to get in those ways of subverting a lot of those um, being first narratives or success narratives has always sort of been interesting to me. Um, and so, yeah, becoming king or like, you know, fairy tales and things like that, where it's like, what happens after you become king? Like, there's that element of, oh, <laughs> now that's, you're, you're still not happy, probably. Um, but most of the, of the general narratives out there just stop after you achieve that goal. And I think we know as a society that, you know, there's this treadmill sometimes we're on and it, you know, achieving that particular cold doesn't really mean anything. So you have to find another way to cultivate a more meaningful way to, to be on this planet with the limited time that we have. I think part of it is like uh, what the, the, the impetus that started me writing in the first place is some, is a few family tragedies. It's like I had, you know, family members that were very successful, but they didn't live for very long. You know, they passed away when they were young. 
And it's like all that energy and all that ambition that went into that um, didn't amount to anything because then you, you don't really have the opportunity to reflect on your life and to actually think about, you know, what it is that matters. So I think that was a big turning point. So at that point, I was reading a, a lot of Le Guin uh, to actually get me through some hard times. Um, there's a section or a passage in her third uh, Earthsea book, uh, The Farthest Shore, which is, even she said, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a story, the theme is death. You know, it, it's the journey we do not return from. Um, and there's a section where Ged, an older and wiser Ged, uh, from the, compared to his uh, Wizard of Earth Sea days, comes to a point where he's contemplating, you know, rarely do you have moments in your life between act and act where you can simply be. And that really sort of anchored itself to me, like, what are those moments? What do we want to achieve and um, make meaning from those moments? Um, because I think those are, those are the pivot points of your life. And that's, so I, I chose, I think I wrote, Playing the Tie was probably one of my first essays I ever wrote. Uh, I haven't looked at it in a while. So it's one of those things where I just wanted to approach life, you know, you know, you have to win at life. It's like, what if that's not the goal? Um, I wanted to sort of play around with the idea. And then uh, second best is best is always, um, I love being second at things uh, personally, just because it takes a lot of pressure out of, you know, being first. And you're like, okay, I accomplished something. And <laughs> it's, it's, you know, I'm, I'm totally fine with this uh, sort of level of, of being just sufficient, being sufficient. It's good. Well, before we end, tell us a little bit about what we can expect from you um, or what is exciting you in either your own writing or in science, um, what you're working on or what is already worked on and coming, coming to us. Sure. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm currently at work uh, on my essay collection uh, called Utter Earth. Uh, best I can describe it is a, it's an exercise in wordplay and earthplay, uh, in which that I'm trying to insert a bit more whimsy into a collection of uh, essays that feature animals and plants and the natural world, and also a bit of human culture, like references, pop culture references. I think it's important to blend the two together, uh, both to make it accessible and both to make it relevant um, because there's a lot of shunning of human centric activities or, or cultures where I think it's, it's, it's better to incorporate elements of the human centric sphere into the work versus just saying this stuff is terrible and making a judgment on those things. So I'm trying to blend a whole bunch of things together. It's, it's a bit of a mashup, I guess. Uh, and I really want to take this idea of humor, uh, as we discuss into the writing. So there's animal essays, for example, who would you want to invite to your next party when we have parties again? Um, you know, I think a sloth would be a great party guest, you know, another animal. So it's like an invite list for animals for your next party. Um, there's career advice from 
odd and ancient creatures, like what they can teach you about living because they've been living for hundreds of millions of years. I think that was interesting. Um, how to make friends um, and keep them lifelong. So there's tips from the animal kingdom on how to, you know, make good friendships. Um, things like that where I'm trying to weave almost like self-help, self-improvement uh, notions with wisdom or insights from the animal and the natural world. Um, what excites me is that doing this research, I'm always coming across something weird and interesting that we're just learning about. So the title essay for the collection is also called Utter Earth. And um, it's a piece where I'm just taking um, fact and findings uh, from scientific articles and sort of stitching it together into some sort of a coherent narrative. There's, there's some meaning behind it, but I just find like each one of those is like someone took the time to like figure that out, <laughs> uh, you know? And it's like, it's always like a really bizarre fact or like someone tested like this particular beetle could get, could survive being run over by a Toyota twice. <laughs> well, and I remember the one that left out to me from that was uh, the koala fingerprints can contaminate a crime scene because they're indistinguishable from human fingerprints. Yeah. What the hell? The world is just full of such very strange and weird things that we're barely discovering. Like there's so much out there and that the, the delightful thing is that people are doing that too. Like they're going out and they're figuring this stuff out. And it's adding to this knowledge that, you know, is, is enriching our lives. And so I think the intention of the, the, the collection also is to, there's a lot of like grief and despair uh, uh, in, in nature writing right now, um, elegies and laments. And I just want to do something on the order of perhaps more of a celebration um, moving the needle a little bit over the other way. Um, and like my inspirations are authors uh, and writers like Amy Leach and Brian Doyle, where they're celebrating and Ross Gay, where they're just celebrating, but not diminishing the, the grief that they feel in the world and the, in the destruction. Like there's, there's room for both. Um, and I think sometimes we lose sight of that because we are so mired in oh no, you know, bad news all the time. But it's like, there's always wonderful things um, that are out there. So I want to sort of focus my collection on that. I'm trying to do it in a way where I don't mention the word climate change in the whole collection once. I don't know if that's possible, but uh, it's gonna be there, but I'm, I'm interested in that as an exercise. Yeah, no, I like that constraint. Um, well, we had talked about you uh, reading the ending to a piece of yours called Nine Tenths. Do you want to introduce us to what that piece is about? And then and we can go out with the final two paragraphs. This is another sort of mashup exercise that I did. Um, I think the prompt that prompted me to do this is going down to ground or, or um, sort of thinking about listening closely to the earth or going to earth uh, in some form. So nine tenths 
is uh, an essay um, that's uh, been published in uh, a literary magazine in the UK called Present Tense in their inaugural issue. And uh, basically, it's just a combination of weird facts um, about their, their icebergs in there. There's hippos, there's polar bears, all sorts of stuff that's mashed up. So the ending uh, of this piece is basically tying everything a little bit together. Um, it's more of a rumination on humanity, I guess, and going to ground. So the last uh, two paragraphs is, maybe we as a species straying are missing something vital by not knowing what it's like to ground down and go dormant for spells the way sessile oaks or fat-tailed lemurs do. Consider the latter, already nine-tenths us in genes grafted onto our present-day civilization. For three to seven months each year, eight billion lemurs gorged with fruit and flower nectar would shut off their lemur zoo meetings and close their lemur straw factories to curl up inside adorable arboreal apartments. Lemur coal plants would power down. Lemur fields would lie fallow a while. Geopolitical tensions and autocratic ambitions would cool off during this bout of torpor, with everyone heeding the beautiful prose over the revenge messaging woven into that most famous of lemur plays, penned by that most renowned of lemur bards. To sleep, perchance to dream, I, I, tis no rub at all. I wonder, dear reader, if we humans in turn would be content with such a swap, to live tale sufficient amongst Madagascan baobabs and flame trees. Would our ambitions lead us back to our old tunes of striving and world rotting? Perhaps. But perhaps through such a species exchange program, we can also glean other ways of being that will linger, will endure. Lemurs may learn to look, really look, up at the stars, while we humans may learn to pause, really pause, seeing down to the roots of creation. And together we might trace the path from the common womb whence we both emerged, to the common clay where we shall one day both return. And together we can sing the praise of an earth that has long sustained our mortal coils, this dark, wild, and strange country, which remains, as always, the only place to shape the primate soul. Thank you so much for being on Crafting with Ursula today, Isaac. It was such a pleasure, David. Thank you. We've been listening to Isaac Yuen about writing nature and nature writing. You've been listening to Crafting with Ursula. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. More of Isaac Yuen's work can be found at ecostories.com, E-K-O stories.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, 
consider transforming yourself from a listener to a listener supporter. Learn about the potential gifts and rewards of doing so at patreon.com slash between the covers. These include everything from rare collectibles from Ursula K. Le Guin to bonus audio beyond the main conversations with everyone from Ted Chang to N.K. Jemison to becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public. Again, you can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank Arwen Curry for the audio of Ursula for our intro from the documentary Worlds of Ursula K. Le Guin. William Anthony for the photograph of Ursula used in the banner. Tin House's Jacob Valla for the graphic design, Becky Kramer for publicity, and Theo Downs Le Guin for his guidance, insight, and encouragement. Finally, the music you hear, called River Song, and the music in the introduction, Heron Song, come from the collaborative album by Todd Barton and Ursula Le Guin called Music and Poetry of the Kesh. Thanks to Todd Barton for granting permission for its use. See you next month for another episode of Crafting with Ursula. Thank you.